episode number eight. My name is James, and today I'm excited to be joined by Pete Quinones of the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast and the Libertarian Institute. As always, you can find today's show notes at urbanagorist.com slash eight. And before we get started with Pete, I want to remind you that the Seed Summit begins tomorrow, November 17th, 2020. It's not too late to sign up for this free education in food sovereignty. You'll learn how to acquire bulk seeds, how to store those seeds for long-term planning, how to create a seed library in your area, how seeds can be adapted for extreme climates, and much, much more. If you're interested in food sovereignty and self-sufficiency, you won't want to miss this important event. Head to urbanagorist.com summit to get signed up for free today. And with that, let's get into it with Pete Quinones. Pete, thanks for joining me today. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience in case they're not familiar with you? Pete Quinones, host of the Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast, one of the co-executive producers of the Monopoly on Violence documentary, managing editor at Libertarian Institute, and uh, all around just way too much on my plate kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, in, a, in addition to a bunch of other stuff, I mean, you're, you're sort of the, a God on Twitter almost. So um, that's pretty great. You, uh, you also are an agorist or an agorist. I don't know which, I don't know which pronunciation you prefer. Um, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Me neither. Uh, you're kind of the one who, gave me permission to look back into it. Actually, we were on a live stream a few months ago, actually with Monica Perez and you kind of came out as an agorist on that live stream. Um, what made you take, jump, take the jump from like kind of conventional ANCAP political uh, libertarian to like a full on agorist rejecting the political realm altogether? Well, Honestly, I just don't think that anarcho-capitalists have a plan. They don't have uh, you know, any kind of strategy, really. Um, I mean, people can say whatever they want about the agorist strategy, um, but at least it's a strategy. I mean, here, read this book. That's not really a strategy. You know, and it's something that I, I used for a lot of years, and I wish I would have embraced my agorist roots. I mean, I've been an agorist my whole life. I, I wish I would have em embraced those roots um, a lot earlier. Um, it's not that I don't like anarcho-capitalism. I just don't think that it's, like I said, there, there's no strategy there. I mean, I know Hoppe has a strategy with, um, you know, what must be done, mm -hmm. things like that, getting involved locally. But uh, I pretty much with even with COVID-19 and with the growing technocratic state and really what I see coming as being the hell that the original technocrats in the 19 teens and twenties and thirties were talking about and preaching. Now I see everything that they were writing about coming into existence. I, I don't even see, maybe there's hopes for local, maybe there's hopes for federalism. Maybe there's hopes for secession. Who knows? Um, I'll have a better idea of that after the election. <laughs> after the election, I'm going to, uh, as I think everyone should, um, re, you know, re-strategize, re, you know, take a look at the landscape and yeah. see exactly what's happening. Um, and remember, we may not even know what the results of the election are for months. So, yeah, I mean, the 
the thing that really made me start talking about agorism was just watching the public's response to the government's response to COVID-19 and watching the public just basically become good little, you know, (laughs) I mean, drones. And for the most part, most people not being willing to do anything about it and not being willing to fight back. And, you know, if you're just one lone nut out there, well, they're just going to take you out and you're, they'll paint you as the lone nut. But if a bunch of people, if a lot of people, if millions of people are like, no, we're not going to put up with this. This is garbage. Um, I mean, we could have made the state could have been irrelevant this year. And, and there's arguments to make that the state is irrelevant. Um, they seem to lack a lot of power without the public's um, <laughs> without the public saying, yes, we trust you on this, on on our health, on our on our future, on our, on our wealth. And um, I think there was a real chance this year that you could have seen a huge pushback and the state could have gotten smaller, but people wanted to be safe. They got scared of an invisible enemy. They got scared of being sick. And yeah, here we are in technocratic hell and talking about mandatory vaccines and talking about, um, you know, if you don't, if you don't accept the vaccine, you don't get to, you don't get to go to the supermarket. You don't get to go to work. You don't get this. You don't get that. And um, yeah, it just basically destroyed medicine this year, destroyed the, any kind of relationship that you would have with your doctor, destroyed any relationship that you can have with older people in your family, other than, um, you know, Zoom or phone calls. And they've basically destroyed society. And I don't see a political solution to that unless masses and masses of people decide that they're just going to say, no, we're not going to do this. So that's why I jumped. That was a long road to why I've been promoting agorism strongly for the last eight months. The last time we the last time we faced sort of a quote invisible enemy was um, in the post nine eleven world, and obviously Al Qaeda is not invisible or was not invisible at the time. They kind of are now, actually. But the the red light, green light, yellow light system that they kind of built up, where all of a sudden we were under a terrorist threat higher today than it was yesterday, uh, seems like seems like there's a lot of parallels there. Um, between then and now, do you think now is is worse than then? Are we blowing this out of proportion, oh, or is I it a con- is it a continuation of that? It's both. It's a continuation, and it's worse. Um, after nine eleven, yeah, the TSA that's not gone away. Yeah. But you know, Tom Wood says it rightly. Comparing like the masks and the TSA is kind of hard because you know, most people don't fly. Maybe right. once a year. You know, so the TSA is really not a headache to them, not for people who, like myself, who try to fly seven, eight, nine times a year, Mm. you know, where it's a pain. Um, But now what we've seen is what we saw, you know, universal spying, the Patriot Act, all of that. The, The main difference is where you knew pretty much after 9 11, you knew what the hijackers looked like. They look like guys from the Middle East. Okay. Now anyone is a witch. Now anyone is possessed. 
and could possibly, you know, put a spell on you that you're going to catch and it's going to shut your lungs down and, you know, and it's going to kill you just like it's, you know, like you're in, like you're a 40 year old healthy person, but you, you're pretending like you're 85 years old and in a nursing home and, you know, and usually on oxygen normally um, it, it's just made people mush. I mean, it's really, when I look at, you know, I think of certain movies, one movie I really haven't thought about and talked about is the movie Wally, where everyone in the future is you know, basically on, on a ship and they, they're fed and they're, they're not doing, they're just blobs and masses and they're just existing. That's pretty much a lot of people right now. And a lot of people want to live like that because they're scared of an invisible enemy. You know, it's, it's really kind of genius that someone figured out that you can only say so much about, you know, Middle Eastern people, you know, it's like, Oh, I have Middle Eastern people in my neighborhood. I've known for years. I know they're not terrorists and everything, but, when anyone, when your when your family members, or p- could potentially kill you, just by being in the same room with you, um, it's th- this is unbelievable. I mean, it's just it's absolute madness that people have literally changed the culture forever because they're scared to get sick. And now, you know, it, they graduated from deaths to cases. And what is cases? Somebody tests positive for antibodies. Is that a case? Somebody tests for it who, you know, has no symptoms whatsoever other than they can't taste or smell. Is that a case? I mean, how dangerous are they? You know, it's like, are, is this what we're scared of? Are we worried about them? Are we worried about what they're going to do to other people? It's it's bizarre. I mean, it just doesn't, I don't understand how people aren't waking up every day and being mad over this because it's, it's maddening. It's, it's insane. And I just, at this point, all I really know what to do is to take care of myself and to just Keep trying to get the message out there, trying to deliver it in different ways. And, you know, apparently facts don't care. Facts don't matter anymore. Statistics don't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. So you just have to sort of try to find new ways to communicate with people. Yeah. yeah. It, I don't know. It's frustrating. It kind, of, it kind of puts Ben Shapiro's old tagline on its head. Feelings don't care yeah. about your facts now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> what do you think? So recently the WHO and Anthony Fauci and even now the New York times have all kind of come out against lockdowns. And the governor of my state was on TV just this week saying, no, 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 there's no more plans for lockdowns. What what do you think that is? As far as I can tell, I think it proves that people aren't even believing these people anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, people still want the lockdowns. People still are like, you know, I'm going to stay home until there's a vaccine. I had someone the other day tell me that they'll finally, I'll finally take this mask off when there's a vaccine. And I asked them very, very nicely. What if it doesn't work? 
And people aren't even thinking about that. That isn't even a consideration in their mind. Yeah. They, I mean, they've bought into this scientism, this, you know, it's like I'm waiting for the magic elixir so that, you know, because it'll defeat the spirit. It'll defeat the evil spirit that's out there. Well, I mean, I, what, what do you want? I mean, I've had somebody on my podcast who, you know, Knut Wachowski, who has the cure for it. He says, this is, you know, if you don't have it, 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 you take it as a precaution when, when there's an, when, when there's an announcement that there's something out there that, you know, there's, there, there's a, a new coronavirus or whatever out there. And you just take it as a, as a precaution, take it a couple times a day and it'll, um, it'll soak up any virus that gets into your blood and you'll urinate it out. But that's just not magical enough, I guess. They need the, they need the magical elixir to, yeah. you know, you know. I mean, I, I would not be shocked at this point that you know, when somebody's getting the vaccine, if there's going to be someone burning sage behind them, because I mean, that's pretty much the attitude that I see now when it comes to medicine. Mm-hmm. Is it used to be about, you know, the best way not to get sick is to be healthy. Have a strong immune system to fight things off, and um, yeah, that was it made sense. That doesn't make sense anymore. You have people who argue it now. You have people who say that you're you're trying to have if you talk about herd immunity or something like that, you're trying to have you know human sacrifice experiments in human sacrifice, things like that. And it's like, where's this come from other than political, other than they have a political agenda. And if they have a political agenda, you have to ask, what is it? And when you start finding, looking at things like the Great Reset and things like that, you very clearly see that they're learning, that these people who have the levers of power are learning. They see, hey, these people lock down for a virus. How much more will they lock down if we tell them the environment's poisoned? And we need to do something about global warming. So they're going to need to stay home mm-hmm. and work from home. And so we're going to have to restructure the whole economy. And, you know, I mean, I've, I read, I read the technocrat, uh, the technocratic movement from the early 1900s, where they talk about how you're going to earn energy credits. And that's what you're going to use to buy the supplies that you need, food and water, things like that. And they expire after a time. And why do they expire? That way, no one can build up wealth. So if you don't, you're earning all these credits by you're working or maybe you're not working and they're giving you these credits so you can pay your rent. You can pay your pay for your food. You can pay for whatever. Well, if you don't use the credits, then they have an expiration date. So you can never no one will ever be able to save for wealth again, uh, save, um, become wealthy again, because that's what they wrote about in the 1930s, said Mm -hmm. a way to keep people from becoming richer than other people. And that's just one, that's just one of the examples that like the world economic forum is taking from all the way back then and trying to use now. And, you know, uh, anyone who's on Twitter has seen the world economic forum talking about by 2030, no one's going to own anything. And they're going to love it. No one's going to have possessions, and they're going to love it. All right. And that right. and that article, Everybody. that article, yeah, uh, you know, the the thing I don't own anything, and and I'm loving it. That came out years ago. That's nothing new. Mm-hmm. That article was written in like 2015. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's they've been planning this for so long. You know, it's you talk about like 
I talk about te uh, Technocracy Inc., which was like the 1920s. And people are like, well, it's just a conspiracy theory. I'm like, okay, go back and read what they were writing. Read what, what their plans were for society. Now, see if any of those plans are being implemented. Do you know how many of them have been implemented in the last eight months or at least strongly considered in the last eight months? It's pretty, it's pretty psychotic. I mean, it's all happening right now and people can, or their eyes aren't open to it. And it's just because people aren't, I don't know. I, I think people have lost their skepticism. Mm -hmm. I think people have lost everything. I think they've lost hope. They've lost skepticism. Um, I think that everyone, you know, for the most part, I would say 99% of humanity right now is just marching forward. Maybe part of them are 100% in line with whatever the elites say they want to do. Another one, another section of them are just looking to see what's going to happen. And then there's this tiny little sliver down here. It's like, nah, man, this is just insane what they're planning and what they're putting in, what they're doing. And nobody's upset about it. And when you show them exactly what they're doing and what their plans have been for a hundred years, they're like, that's a conspiracy theory. All right. All right. Hey, I, I, I don't want to be the person, you know, I would rather it not happen than, ha than me have to say, I told you so. Cause I mean, I told you so all that means in when it comes to important stuff like this is that we're all screwed. Who, uh, do, do you know the names of some of the people that you're referring to the technocrat movement? I've, I'm not actually familiar with it. Um, I'd have to pull out like Patrick Wood's book. Um, okay. That's fine. Technocracy. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're not household names, but when you come forward to 1973 and the formation of the trilateral commission, mm -hmm. um, a lot of those names you will, you'll know that you'll have Kissinger names in there. You'll have Brzezinski names in there and they're basically picking up the mantle of the technocrats and moving it forward. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The fact that so many of those like ancient people are still alive, even <laughs> to, to me is fishy. Uh, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You earlier said that you were getting back to your agorist roots and that you've kind of always been an agorist. What, what started it? What, what was like the very first thing that, you did to sort of opt out. I mean, I can go all the way back to childhood. I mean, we would trade stuff um, amongst ourselves. We would, um, I remember the first really, really nice pair of hockey gloves I ever bought were like 60 bucks or 65 bucks brand new. And um, I think it was my dad. I can't remember if it was my dad or my uncle who like can't, came to the house and he's like, if you want these, they're 20 bucks. And I'm like, so how are these 20 bucks? I know they're $60 at Paragon's. And he's like, well, they fell off the back of a truck. Don't ask any questions. <laughs> and, um, and that was pretty much growing up was, I mean, it was so much stuff that we had. We had, it was all black market stuff in the house. And the way, I mean, I remember the first time we could ever afford to go on vacation when I was a kid, it was because my dad hit the number. Do you know what that, do you know what that is? No. In, the, in New York, there were these, um, it was a network of betting parlors that were completely illegal. Police knew about them. It was mm -hmm. mob, it was, it was mob run. And 
they would you would go there and you'd be like okay i'm going to put twenty dollars on this number coming out today and the number would always somehow be tied to um like the payout the total payout horse racing at of the the horses at like aqueduct in new york where, where they where they had daily horse races and um yeah my dad the first time we ever went on vacation which i think was i think we went to florida and then we went to Puerto. we were like in in florida for a week and then puerto rico for a week and then back home that was completely paid for by money that my dad made my dad made gambling illegally um so i mean i grew up around in an environment where i was not it it wasn't looked down upon to do illegal stuff you know Mm -hmm. and to buy hot you know things that were hot quote unquote and so you know i that just continued as i got as I got to be an adult, I would, you know, look for something. And um, if I needed something, I'd see if I could get it on the street first, because it would always be cheaper. And, you know, that just kept going and going and going. As as I got older, I started, um, you know, I, I did have a business that was completely off the books and completely black market that I ran for five years. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, to this day, I do... Um, agorist things in my life i mean i have a straight job but i do agorist things in my life that um you know i don't i don't um what i do right now i don't talk about um just because (laughs) yeah you know they're (laughs) they can really uh get some heat brought down on me but um yeah it's just part of my part of my life it's always been part of my life it was just never never frowned upon when you grow up poor in New York city or anywhere, you know, it's like my mom's relatives out in Western Pennsylvania for a hundred years, they've been making shine out there and selling it. And that's like their major source, major source of income, you know? So, I mean, that's just, it was never when I realized that there was actually a term for it an agorism and that somebody had written a couple books about it, um, that was interesting to see somebody tying Austrian economics into it, um, which was actually very nice, very uh, extremely interesting. Made me want to read the books, yeah. Which I, you know, which I did. Read them a couple times, and yeah. I mean, it's just I think that it's really one of the great ways to starve the state, um, you know, but also have access to things that the government says you can't. So, yeah, for sure. What, uh, so you, you spent some time in seminary, right? Or, uh, theology school of some sort. Yeah. I went to, I went to seminary. What, uh, what, what brought you there? How did that, uh, how did, how did you go from black market kid to seminarian? It just, in my early, in my late twenties, I started going to church and I'm one of those people that if I start doing something, I want to know everything about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like when I became a libertarian, I wanted to start reading all the libertarian literature possible. And I was much the same way. So, um, I had the pastor of the church I was going to had graduated from this seminary. So he called up and he said, look, this guy, he doesn't, he's, 45 credits shy of, of an undergrad degree. Can I get him in there? And I want him to graduate and do the whole core and do the, do all three years, 
but we won't we just won't give him sheepskin until he gets those 45 credits is that cool <laughs> and him his brother also graduated from the seminary and then i knew a couple other people who uh, were going at the time they were very nice they were very accommodating and um yeah so i got to study and got to take uh, <laughs> enough courses that um as my dad as my dad used to say that so many people, a lot of people go to seminary and they study so hard that they study themselves out of faith. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was me. Yeah. So um, yeah. So I went and learned everything that I possibly could. And I'm very, very well read when it comes to the Bible and also biblical um history of like the protestant reformation um mm -hmm. mostly not really the protestant reformation more along the lines of the teachings of the early protestants and especially like the the anabaptists and a lot of the the english puritans and yeah it was studying all that just sort of made me go yeah this um <laughs> i remember the first time i took a textual criticism course it was uh it was hilarious because we had people in there that were auditing it and technically i was technically i was an audit mm -hmm. but i was considered as a student but we had like there were women in there who were auditing it and the seminary that i went to the they wouldn't it was a denomination that would never ordain a woman a woman so um so we um we start this textual criticism course within the first 10 minutes of him explaining like, and, and he started with the gospels. It's like, okay, this is what we know about where the gospels came from. First 10 minutes, I I'm hearing whispers from people next to me going, this is really scary. And what they were saying was, it's really scary that when you sit in a course and you find out in a textual criticism course, and they start teaching you exactly what they know about the, origins of the scripture how you're like how you're immediately like oh so the origins is on faith too okay got yeah. it okay <laughs> right <laughs> okay <laughs> okay sure okay. and um yeah so that was pretty funny but um yeah it was just stuff like that it was just reading and getting into their library which was absolutely amazing and reading books that were off the curriculum and everything and i was just like this is all interesting this is great history but yeah, i don't believe this I don't believe this stuff. I, I believe it is history. Mm. I believe a lot of it is allegory, but um, yeah, I don't just, I, I don't take this on, on faith anymore. So, so what, uh, were, would you have, uh, would you have called yourself libertarian back then? Or w when did that come about? Um, that would not, I would, no, I wouldn't have called myself libertarian back then. Back then I probably would have called myself, I would have definitely called myself Republican. Mm. Yeah. Uh, libertarianism was 2007 with the, the first Ron Paul run. I was really, con I mean, I knew the government sucked and everything, but I just couldn't get the, the whole foreign policy thing after nine 11, just really confused the crap out of me. And it, Ron Paul pretty much explained it in like a couple seconds in a debate. And I'm like, Oh yeah that's how, how that's so easy how could i not how could not have come to that on my own and so after i 
saw that, I started to do research into who Dr. Paul was, and I found out that he was a Libertarian Party candidate for president in 1988. And I saw a couple interviews where he talked about like Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises. So I immediately, you know, went to the internet and started Googling and think how old Google was at that time. What were they, two? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and just found those books and started reading. And that just took me down the rabbit hole for a couple of years. And then I stopped studying that for a couple of years. And then I started studying more um, ancient, uh, not ancient religions, but Eastern religions. Oh. And I really concentrated on Eastern religions for like four, like a good four years. And I wasn't reading anything libertarian. And then around 2015, I started reading. I started reading again. I started picked um, Rothbard back up and uh, Democracy, the God that Failed. And that brought me back in. And then yeah. ever, ever since then, I've pretty much been uh, full steam trying to do what I can to wake people out of their slumber and, you know, realizing, realize the road we're going down. I was, uh, I, I got super deep into Catholicism. Similarly, I, ne I never went to seminary, obviously. Uh, but, uh, I studied the early church fathers probably in a lot of the same way that you studied the Protestant reformers and, um, and their sort of progeny. Uh, and I actually came to libertarianism through a Catholic blogger who is very anti-libertarian. He says, libertarianism is an ideology for people without children, but Hey, there's this guy who's anti-war and pro-life. So I guess he's my candidate this year, even though he's libertarian. Uh, and that's how I discovered Ron Paul was through this Catholic blogger. And he also wrote a review of Tom Woods's book, how the Catholic church built Western civilization. So that's how I discovered Tom Woods as well. And uh, so I kind of left the Catholic rabbit hole and went down the libertarian rabbit hole because of this guy who really kind of detests libertarianism, um, which I'm sure he wouldn't appreciate too much, but uh, I think I came out of it for the better anyway. Um, you, you're also, we had, we had to read, um, even though it was Protestant, we, we had to read the early church fathers sure. as well. So yeah. yeah, that's where a lot, I think a lot of the reason why I can pick up, really dense libertarian manuscripts mm -hmm. and be able to really to read them and to grasp them is from reading the early church fathers is because it's not very easy reading. Yeah. And um, once, once you can do that, then it really changes your mind. And it, it, it really does change almost like change your chemistry where now I can do, now I can do something that I couldn't do before. I can, this book that would have been intimidating to me before now is um, digestible. Yeah. I think that's one of the benefits, maybe one of the few benefits of formal education or schooling is that you're kind of forced to read those uh, original sources. And also you kind of learn how to do it. Um, I, I am not very good at that to be honest, like, you know, I can't read the church fathers and grasp everything that's written because I don't have a teacher telling me what they're saying um, or at least what they think they're saying. Uh, so um, that's probably one of the benefits that you got out of seminary that has stuck with you. Um, so you're also married to a libertarian uh, influencer, kind of. I think she actually, I came across her before I came across you. How'd you meet Jen? Uh, this, I've known Jen since uh, shortly, I mean, what, a couple months after 9-11? Oh, wow. 
Yeah. Uh, we've known each other since 2001 and we were uh, the company I was working for at the time in South Florida. Um, they hired her. So we were friendly and everything. And she worked there for, I think she worked there for six months and then she left. And then she came back to work there like six months later. I think she came back to work there in like the ending of 2002. And at the time she had a boyfriend and I, I was going, I was doing missionary work overseas. So I was going back and forth from here and, you know, just doing, it really wasn't missionary work at that point. I had lost my faith at that point. <laughs> it was just me, basically a, a church group saying, can you come help us do this? And it was me like, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, I can do it. I can do it. Yeah. I mean, I had just had the time and I had, I wanted to, um, I really, I still think that, um, serving other people, I, I don't care if, you know, if I don't believe that, you know, whatever the Bible says uh-huh. to do, I still think in serving, serving other people is important. Um, you know, I think that, when you travel as much as I have, you start realizing that most people are really the same. I mean, everybody, and it's amazing. You can go halfway around the world and the person has the same sense of humor as you do. And they live in squalor. Um, So we, yeah, so I was going back and forth and everything and she had a boyfriend and everything. And then um, she broke up with her boyfriend and like around 2003, um, we started like in early 2003, we started dating. And it, you know, and I was still going back and, you know, making plans to go back and forth and everything. So um, after we started dating, we were together a while and we just decided we were going to stay together. So that's pretty cool. So did you, did you guys have kind of parallel journeys to libertarianism? Oh, we both became, we both became libertarians watching that Ron Paul debate. We were watching it together in 2007. I mean, we lived together and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we were, well, actually we were married by that time. Yeah. We, yeah, we had, we got married in, um, Labor Day, 2007. Okay. So, um, yeah. So, and then it was, or it may have been, I I don't remember if that, I can't remember the, the date of the debate, but, um, it may have been after that. It may have been before that, but it was 2007 Ron Paul. So it was right around, right around the same time we got married too. So, yeah, I remember Matt Welch from reason mentioned her on something. And uh, so I followed her on Twitter cause she was entertaining and funny and uh, had good takes, you know, from where I was coming from. Um, so when I found out that you guys were together, that was a, that was, <laughs> that was kind of a surprise. Um, Bob, Mur- Bob Murphy just found out two weeks ago. Yeah. And I know, you know, and I, I, Bob Murphy's been on my show. I've hung out with Bob Murphy at the Mises Institute uh-huh. and he's just never put it together. <laughs> and he slid up in my DMs like probably a week ago and said, <laughs> so like, there, there's still people who don't, who don't pick up on that. Yeah. You know? so, um, it's fine though. I mean, we, when it comes to libertarianism, we operate separately. Yeah. We don't, she's been on my show before I've been, she's been on my show a few times. I've been on her show once, but we don't rely on you know it's not like we're a team yeah you know we're, we're not this libertarian team we're just you know we happen to be you know and she's more of a, re- a re- reason magazine libertarian and i'm more of a mises institute libertarian mm-hmm. so i mean it's we have some differences but you know it's gonna it, it, it's better than being married to a socialist 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hey, were you at the Soho Forum debate where Danny Surgeon and the guy from the Ayn Rand Institute were debating Israel and Palestine? Sure was. All right. So we have actually met before in person. This was back when you were Mance Raider before you'd come out with your yeah. with your real name and you were hanging out with Dave Smith. And so I shook hands with Dave Smith and I was kind of starstruck and you were there and I was like, that looks just like Mance Raider. How weird. How did you, how did you get in with like the who's who of libertarianism? How, wh- how did your star rise? Uh, um, I probably have to give most of the credit to Scott Horton. He, oh. Scott, when, when I wrote the, the little study guide to freedom through memedom, I asked Scott if he would do the introduction for it, you know, like mm-hmm. a, a forward for it. And um, of course he's, he he said yes, and then getting him to do it was a, it was like, you know, <laughs> dude, can you write this, please? I want to I want to put the book out. I want to release the book. Can you write this and everything? But no, it was great. I mean, um, it, it came out right in, right on time and everything. You know, it wasn't like it needed to be out any earlier. Yeah. And um, so when I released it, I announced it on Twitter, and Scott retweeted it. And was like, hey, I wrote, you know, I wrote the forward for this. Check this out. This is like a really good study guide, basic, basic libertarianism kind of thing. And like Dave Smith, like contacted me. I don't think he had followed me at that point. Um, And he contacted me through DMs and, you know, he's like, hey, do you want to come on the show and talk about the book? And that's pretty much what started it down the road, you know, and I, um, you know, and then after I was on the show and we started talking a little bit, um, we were DMing and I said, you know, the, the dream is always to get on, get on Tom Wood's show. And, you know, so Dave's, <laughs> yeah. so D- Dave's like, hold up, let me see what I can do about that. So, and then um, like, you know, a couple of weeks later I was on Tom Wood's show and that's really what started me, started me off. Um, I had a podcast at that point. My podcast would have been, six months old at that point. Mm -hmm. And I had, it started on YouTube only. And then I switched over to um, putting it on, on a podcast host. And that's when I started to see the download numbers start to go up and go up and go up. And, you know, being on Dave's show subsequently, every time I've been on his show, I've seen a boost Um, every time I've been on Tom's show, I've seen a boost in my download numbers, um, a lot of a lot of this year when COVID started, I think a lot of libertarian podcasters didn't want to talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to concentrate on it hard. Yeah. And I think that that really helped me to have an explosion of a of a crowd, uh, an explosion of downloads was being one of the people who was like, this is insane. Um, Ron Paul was right from the start. This is a hoax. And, you know, we need to do something about it. And talking about agorism too, I think brought some people over, but yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the, um, you know, I, I mean, I owe it to being on show like Dave's show and being on Tom's show, being on Lions of Liberty and, you know, having them being nice enough to come on my show and, you know, people being like, hey, why, you know, why would they, why would those two big guys, you know, wh- why does Scott Horton go on his show all the time and everything like that? And, um, you know, that helps. 
that helps a lot too. Tell me about freedom through memedom. I know it's oh. a, it's, it's a few years old now, but, uh, it's awful. It's- uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I so want to rewrite it, but I just don't have time to. Yeah. Um, it's just basically a volunteer, uh, a 31 day guide to volunteerism that has <clears throat> no nuance whatsoever. It's just like, you know, you either love the state or you hate the state. Mm-hmm. And if you love, and if you love the state, you're the enemy. And if you hate the state, you're on my side. And like I said, there's no nuance whatsoever when it comes to um, anything, pretty much anything. <laughs> um, if I wrote it now, it would probably be a lot longer because I, you know, I would expound upon some of the ideas. But the idea for it was to be something that was so simple and included memes yeah. that you could give it to a friend. And even if the friend just threw it on on the back of their toilet or they threw it on their coffee table, (laughs) eventually they're going to pick it up. And it's the way I structured it was you could literally do a lesson in like 30 seconds. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a it's kind of like a libertarian daily devotional with memes instead of Bible verses. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I was, I definitely had that in mind. Um, I, in the, in the late nineties, I did some accounting for, a Christian bookstore and I had never seen devotionals before and I saw devotionals at that time. So that was definitely an inspiration. So you're one of the executive producers on the great documentary Monopoly on Violence. Uh, I don't think, I don't think people really knew that. Like I thought that was a Chris, Chris Kofer thing completely. Um, And I knew that there were, I've interacted with a couple of the writers online, but uh, I didn't realize that your hand was so heavily in it. What a, how did you get, how did you get um, hooked up with stateless productions and are you able to reveal kind of what's coming around the bend? Are you guys yeah, working well, on a new project? Well, it was Chris's idea to do a documentary on anarchism and he contacted Robert first and he got Robert on board and then they came to me and asked me if I wanted to be on board. And really, I mean, a couple of reasons, first of all, Chris isn't in Atlanta now, but we were all three lived in, in the Atlanta area. So we were all three local to each other. We could get together and, you know, have meetings and talk and things like that. Uh, Also, the people that we wanted to interview for it, most of them I had already interviewed. So it was very easy for me Mm. to contact people and say, hey, you know, we're doing a documentary. Can uh, if we come to you, can, you know, you answer some questions being the documentary, Um, you know, and when it came down to it, I, I don't think Robert or I think one of the main reasons why my name is like when when this starts, my name is on the top yeah. is because I was responsible for a lot of the crowdfunding uh, oh, when great. it was. Yeah. When it was when it came time to raise funds for it, I started blasting it out on Facebook and I started blasting it out on Twitter. Now, neither of them has a Twitter presence, so. Um, between my Twitter presence and I think I may have more friends than them. I don't know, but um, just, you know, having that name, people knowing my name from the document, from uh, the podcast and everything. Um, when I said we were doing crowdfunding for the documentary and we put together that one minute um, video showing exactly what we were going to do, who we were going to interview and everything. Um, I was able to draw a lot of people in to donate. And that was, you know, something that 
from the start, I didn't know that I would have any kind of um, influence to do, but it turned out I did. And um, yeah. And then when it came, when it came down to doing like interviews and stuff, I wrote a bunch of the questions Mm -hmm. and I remember the the funniest one was um, um, Chris is driving on the East coast to interview Maj Ture. So he's going to Philly to interview Maj Ture. And he's like, I, I have no que- I have no questions to ask him. So I, I like I was at wor- I was at work and I immediately like and he's like, I'm like a half hour away. I'm like, OK, give me 15 minutes. Yeah. So in 15 minutes, I just like fired off, you know, just hit a bunch of questions and I sent them to him and everything. So um, yeah, I wrote a lot of the questions that you see. Um, when you see, you know, like Jeff Deist talking in the uh, documentary, he's answering questions that we wrote. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I wrote a lot of those questions. Chris wrote a lot of those questions. Robert wrote a lot of those questions. The two, um, you know, our other writers, you know, Andrew and, um, and Killian and Bryce, they wrote a lot of the questions and everything. So, um, and then when we pretty much came out with the script for it, how we were going to structure it, I laid down like a, a framework of the narration. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I don't know that we used any of the narration that I wrote and I had written narration for pretty much the whole thing, but I think it helped to just writing that out, helped to be able to structure it and see how we wanted it to flow and how much narration. Then we decided as much narrate, I had put too much narration in there and the narration that's in there now is actually the perfect amount. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I was really, when I was brought on, I was brought on, understood to um, reach out and be, you know, be sort of the face and everything for it because I sort of had a face at the time, mm-hmm. but um, I do like the, the input that I was able to give, but you know, when you do something like this, fundraising is really important. And, and um, you know, I was able to able to pull that off and on the next one, you know, we're going to need, we're, we're going to, we're going to need more money than we, the, the way we're planning on doing our next documentary is we're going to need more money than we originally said we could do it for 15,000. That was way off. We ended up getting 25, we ended up getting 25,000 in donations, thankfully. And then we still had to, you know, still had more money that we needed to use on top of that. But on this next one, we're, you know, we're, we've already overestimated and, on this one, people are actually going to be getting paid to be a part of it. You know, mm. no one, none of us, no one had, no one who had anything to do with the documentary got paid on this because there's no money. I mean, we just yeah. we have nothing. Yeah. There's no money. Um, everything was used. And, um, but the people who are going to be contributing to this one, we want to make sure that they get paid because it's going to be a lot of the same people who made this, who made Monopoly and, we don't want them to feel like they're working for free this time. So um, that's why we're going to, we're going to need a lot more money. And also I'm, I will not say the name, but we also are looking at getting somebody pretty famous to do the narration. And that's uh-huh. going to cost, that's going to cost the money. So that's going to cost some money too. So are you able to tell me what the topic is? Oh, it's going to be on the police. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's, or, we already have uh, a group that we've we've had a call and everything. We have a key base group and outlines are already being written and um, 
pretty soon people are going to be reached out to and the fundraising is going to is actually going to be starting very soon do you fundraise through kickstarter or do you do it on your own how do you do that indiegogo is the best oh great one of the reasons indiegogo is the way to go is i think kickstarter and certain other ones you actually have to meet your goal Mm -hmm. In order to collect the money, Indiegogo. So, say you you say, "Hey, I need a hundred thousand to make this," but you only get seventy five thousand. You still get to take the seventy five thousand and use it. Yeah. Um, but where I think, I think Kickstarter. If you say you're going to do a hundred thousand, you have to hit a hundred thousand before you can actually get the money. So, I believe that's what that's how it was. That was how it was explained to me. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I apologize. Um. I'm going to switch back to COVID, but also spirituality. Um, you and Vin Armani recently did just this epic conversation uh, on the dim age and entering an era of magic. Um, and I'd like to know what the hell you meant by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's really not hard to figure out once you start trying to nail it down Mm -hmm. is that facts don't matter anymore. Statistics don't matter anymore. People don't want to see it. People want, people want that elixir, that magic elixir, you know, that they're going to inject into their veins and it's going to chase all the demons away. There's really, I mean, if you cannot convince people with facts, statistics, logic, reason, um, a calm demeanor. What else is there to do? And people, they're looking for... When you start with the basis of the invisible enemy, I mean, the invisible enemy is like some kind of spiritual, you know, you're almost talking about like, um, like spiritual warfare. It's mentioned, I mean, you can make the the correlations very easily. Mm -hmm. Ben likes to talk about the Salem witch trials, where when you look at, you know, oh, this person is is asymptomatic, but they could be a super spreader. Yeah. I mean, that's really no different than the witches in Salem, where it's like, well, you know, we're not really sure if they're a witch, but, you know, let's still tie a stone to them and throw them in the water. And, you know, if God doesn't save them, then they were a witch. And if, if, if they were, if God doesn't save them, they were a witch. If God, if they were innocent, well, God's going to take them to heaven. It's, you can hear arguments like that. Now it's, there's, there's no science behind anything that they're, they're talking about. So, what's it going to take? I mean, it's going to take things that are out of the ordinary and things that, you know, would be embarrassed, almost embarrassing. You know, it's like memetics or, um, you know, what have been say, um, like that five finger death punch video where it's like, you know, that you have to, you have to almost entertain them into questioning what's going on. You know, it's like, it's really, you don't want to use idiocracy because you know, I saw Idiocracy for the first time, two thousand eight, two thousand eight ish, and I watch it and I'm like, man, you know, if I ever have kids, my gr- my great 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 grandkids are probably going to have to live through this. 
I didn't think I was going to have to live through it 12 years later. I, I, I didn't. I mean, it's the most, we live in the most anti-intellectual age right now. Yeah. It's like, they don't want, they don't want to know facts. They don't want to know. It's like, no, get the man in the white coat to come up there. It's like Vin said, what did Vin say on that episode? He said that, um, it could get to the point where, um, like somebody's up at the front of the room chanting, and it's like this is going to take it away. This is how COVID's going to go away. We're going to chant, maybe wave a little sage or something like that around, <laughs> and you know, and, and there's going to be some libertarian in the back of the room is going to go, hey, you know, this is going, and you're like, shut up, shut up. Yeah. Have Shut you read? <laughs> have you read this article by Jeffrey Tucker? It, it yeah. proves you wrong. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like <laughs> Which, shut up. If if this is what it takes, if it takes them to believe in magic, to think that this is going to go away, that that this isn't a threat anymore, then let them, let them burn sage, let them you know put patchouli oil on, let them inject st- stupid shit into their veins. I mean, I, I don't want anything to do with it. I think the problem is, is that. It's the technocrats. When you study technocratic history, it's mm. it's everyone's going to have to be a part of it. Everyone's going to have to. If everyone's not opting in, they're not going to be able to get the kind of control they want. And um, legal man on Twitter has a. Uh, I'm going to have him on my show um, pretty soon. I'll probably release the episode. We're going to record this weekend next week. He's really great. And someone I just, yeah. Monica, Monica and Brad just started having him on their show recently. And I started listening to his podcast, uh, the quash and a couple episodes ago, he was talking about the vaccine and he's like, people think it's going to be like this grand, you're going to make this grand stand of, um, of, Oh, if you come to the, the police are going to come and they're going to force hold you down while somebody puts it's like, no, no, it's just going to be like, well, you, you can't go to the grocery store, right? You can't go to work. Your kids can't go to school. It's going to be that easy. You know, it's like I read an article in 2015, 2016 about um, how, how gun control can work very easily. Mm-hmm. Well, we know you own guns and your bank accounts frozen until you turn mm-hmm. them in. Yeah. And, and well, yeah, they don't need to. They don't need to send. They don't need to send cops. They just. You have. We've all become such slaves to. You know, it's like um, my, my friend Farah put something on uh, on on Instagram this morning about uh, you know how supply lines for food can be cut off because of COVID and how many kids could be dying because of this overseas and everything. And I just snarkily. But no, no, I see the grocery. There's groceries on on the shelf at Kroger. These are lies. And that's what it is, is we're so reliant on other people for our sustenance, for everything we have. You know, it's like, hey, if you want to eat, go to the grocery store. If you want water, you know, either you go to the grocery store or you can have tap water. Um, But still, you're relying on somebody else for that. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be very easy for these technocrats. And I was, I've been talking about, even before I started studying the history of the technocrats, I've been using that term for six, seven months be, to talk about how, you know, Dr. Like Knut Witkowski, who I had, you know, was fortunate enough to meet in New York and have dinner with and mm-hmm. pick his brain and then have him on my show. How this is a guy who was head researcher at, at Hoover University, but he's, he's not real. He's not a real doctor. No, it's only the ones that are paraded on TV. Yeah. 
It's the only the ones that the, that the entertainment, that, that the idiot box, the people on the idiot box, the entertainment box tell you they're the one, they're the real doctors. Oh, some couple doctors in California want to talk about how, you know, you know, vitamin D and you know, sunlight and you know, good health can help to prevent this and will help to fight it. If you do get it, it won't be so bad. No, those people, you have to take them off of YouTube. You have to t- tear them down. And yeah, you just, it, it's, it, it's like the, we have the witch doctor. This is our witch doctor. You listen to our witch doctor. Your witch doctor is no good. Your, your witch doctor, your witch doctor doesn't know the spells that our witch doctor knows, and that's medicine right now. I mean, have you seen the reports of the people like in Britain who are dying from cancer because they can't get can- because they haven't been able to get cancer treatments in the last mm-hmm. six to seven months? And this is this is witchcraft, and it's really and what it is is it's murder. It's it's a culling. It's looking, I mean, right off the bat, when they started saying that this was attacking people who were like 80 years old and over, I immediately said it unapologetically. It's attacking the useful cedars. It's attacking the sponges. <laughs> it's attacking the people who, it, it, it's almost like it was, I'm, I'm not saying it was designed this way. I mean, most flus or coronaviruses that come along right. do, do worse on people who are immunocompromised and older people. But it's attacking, it's killing all of these people. So I mean, it's it's almost like they're happy mm-hmm. because now no social, no more social security for these people. No more. I mean, I mean, they've basically saved money by having this, by doing this, and then the watching Walmart and Amazon and all these huge companies grow and. Um, their wealth increase while smaller companies just businesses just die and disappear. I mean, this is, this is technocracy. One oh one is where you're just going to have a couple, you'll have a couple suppliers and they'll be the ones who they'll finally figure out. I posted something on Twitter yesterday. It was talking about, and it was from the technocracy study guide from 1934 hmm. basically says, Yep. We, there's so much wealth on the continent of the United States that, but it's so, it's spread out so unevenly. So what we have to do is we have to raise up a technate in order to be able to distribute it, to be able to distribute all of the, you know, to, to make it fairer. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. And people don't see it. I'm, I'm like screaming from the rooftop, screaming from the mountaintop going, Hey, Hey, look what they're doing. Look, look how they're setting this up. Do you want to do anything about it? And people are like, no, no, yeah. Take off the tinfoil hat, Alex <laughs> Jones. No. Is, there, uh, is there any way that you see that people can um, thrive or even prosper in this, uh, this coming era? <laughs> yeah, a couple ways. Black market, um, supplying things that people are going to want but are going to be in short supply. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the same old way that it always happens, get into bed with the state, get into bed with the technocratic state. I mean, that's Gee, the Thanks, way. Pete. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> am I lying? 
I mean, the, the way this just look at the last hundred years since the progressive era. I mean, when somebody when somebody actually starts a business and is prosperous, mm-hmm. it's almost like they're doing it despite the state because the state puts so many things in their way. It's like you're you're a gene. You have to be a genius or some, you know, and sometimes lucky. I, I don't like the term luck, but sometimes lucky. But I mean, it, it's just gotten to the point where it's like, I mean, there are states right now who are talking about relocking down. Yeah. I mean, Ohio's talking about relocking down. Texas is talking about relocking down. I, it's, I don't know, especially people in the libertarian and cap, whatever sphere, the ones who don't see what's going on eight months down the line, I don't know how they're going to see what, what it's going to take at this point. Until it's, you know, really forced police forcing people to be injected with stuff or stuff like that, which it won't come to. So if if they do it the way I think they're going to do it, a lot of these people are just going to stay asleep until, you know, they're, (laughs) I don't know. I'd like to be able to make, like I said, I'm going to make more predictions once the, once I know what the results of the election Mm -hmm. Then I'll, then I will make predictions about what about what the future is. But either way, even with Trump, I, I don't yeah. I, you know, people say he's Batman. I, I don't think he's <laughs> Batman. I mean, I just don't. I think he is a very self-interested guy who doesn't like a certain segment of this population, which happens to be the segment of the population that I pretty much despise, too. Right. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to support him. I mean, the guy worships the military worships the police um that's enough for me to be to be out i mean you know he's where are the pedophile arrests where are the frigging pedophile arrests that i've been hearing about for four years yeah come on it's like oh well you know they've had some arrests and big arrests yeah well they had arrests under obama too they have to keep up appearances you know so yeah it's not like the big names uh yeah and it, it also one other kind of benefit of Trump, I guess, is that it seems like he understands magic. Um, I know uh, the Dilbert guy, Scott Adams, was calling him a master persuader in 2016, which is the same thing. I mean, he understands how to cast spells. And mm-hmm. I think also that's probably why he picked Scott Atlas, who has I mean, he has no background in epidemiology or vi- virology. Uh but he is telegenic and he, he knows how to cast spells. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess that would be one benefit of Trump winning this, this crazy election. Um, yeah. It, I is mean, that he's, I, he, he's a, he's a counteract a, a countermeasure to the age of magic because he's sure. part of it. Well, sure. Yeah. And he, um, you know, he can just say things. He, he just can put out a tweet and, it's like he just put out a a controlling spell over a certain segment of the population yeah. who now is acting in a certain way because he wants them to. Mm-hmm. And that is that that's powerful. I mean, I don't like I said, I, I mean, I want to believe. Let me tell you something. If they do march to pedophiles out and everything, I'll be the first one to say I was wrong. I'm glad he did it. If he frees, you know, if he gives clemency to Ross Ulbricht and pardons Julian Assange and, and, um, 
and what's his name over there in Russia, Edward Snowden. Mm-hmm. I'll be like, okay, cool. You know, um, yeah, hey, he did a good job. I was wrong. I was wrong about him on this. Mm-hmm. But I mean, until I see that, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not going to pretend that. Uh, I mean, there's a whole segment of the population is like, you know, just trust the plan. And I'm like, eventually, if you have a plan, you have to put it into action. And it doesn't, you can't do that overnight, you know? So what, how has this plan been working? I remember they were, remember the, um, they were talking about um, who was the one who presided, the lawyer who presided over um, Russiagate? Was it Clapper? (sighs) No, no, no. no, um, Oh, Mueller. 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 Yeah. 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 Sorry. Do, Do you remember when, when Trumpers were saying that, he was actually getting together a whole, he was putting together cases against Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, and that's what he was doing in secret. He wasn't working on Russiagate. He was actually doing this. Yeah, there were people. No, I didn't, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't part of that circle. That, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, Trumpers, were, Trumpers were actually saying that that was happening. And it's like, wow. you know, um, yeah, you, you kind of got that one wrong. And you want to say that they got Russiagate wrong? Well, you kind of got that one wrong. So maybe you should own up to that. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Cool. Well, I try, uh, yeah, I try not to make predictions, specific predictions like that. I mean, I'm making predictions about what the country, you know, what the society is going to be like very soon. Uh-huh. But I mean, I'm trying to make them as broad as possible. And um, and I also try to make them as war, as bad as possible so that when... Um, if it's not as bad, then I can go, you know, I don't care if someone's like, well, you said it was me. Well, let's just be happy. It was this way, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because even half of what I think is going on, if that happens, we're all in deep trouble. Yeah. We're, we're all in deep trouble. I've got one last question uh, before, mm-hmm. before I let you go. What, what advice would you give to your sort of stereotypical libertarian who doesn't know how to exist in the spiritual realm because they're so cerebral? Cause that's very important right now. Go listen to Ben Armani, um, yeah. go to his channel. And I can't remember. I can never remember the name of it. Um, he has a series of videos. Oh, I mean, the, I, the ascendant project. Yeah. The ascendant project. Yeah. Start, start, start with that and give him, give him seven or eight episodes and see what you think. Also listen to the episode I did with him on the dim age. I think yeah. that was, is it four? Is it four eighty? It's episode 478, but yeah, that's what, that would be my, uh, start with, yeah, start with the dim age episode 478 of my podcast. And then okay. if you like, if you're interested in what Vin has to say, go to his YouTube channel and, um, start listening to the ascendant project. I mean, it's long. I've been listening to it when I've been flying recently, mm-hmm. um, cause I've taken a bunch of flights lately. Um, but it's real interesting when you start, um, when he starts talking, I mean, the, the problem with a lot of libertarianism is one of the parts of libertarianism that I hate the most is the militant atheism part of libertarianism, because mm-hmm. that just to me is ridiculous. And, and it's virtue signaling. You know, if you're if your whole thing is on libertarian Twitter or Facebook is to make memes um, saying that anybody who believes in a high, in, in a higher power or God is an idiot. Well, you're as far as I'm concerned, you're probably you're probably a teenager. 
you're <laughs> yeah yeah because you're just you're, you're just seeking to divide people you know and then yeah, i tell them to go over and like the anarcho-christian page so you can see how people like myself who read the bible and know that anyone who's a christian or believes in god should be an, an anarchist i mean it, by default not even a question by default but you know the hardcore atheists are just the worst but I think that's one of the big problems with getting people to understand that facts, facts don't care about your feelings doesn't work anymore. Right. It it just, I mean, yeah, you can own some, you can own some people on social media, but you're not, you're not stopping the spread of totalitarianism, dystopianism, and this technocratic rise. And you're just not. And until you can figure out how to communicate in this age properly you're you're just useless to you're useless to us another project that vin worked on that um i'll probably link as well is uh it's a podcast he did with a guy named dave butler who uh i'm not familiar with but i'd like to get him on the show it's called destination unknown and yes yeah it's it's a series it's a series of two hour just conversations between them. Mm -hmm. They're getting progressively drunker as they're downing bottles of wine. And it's fantastic. Uh, I've been working my way through that for the last couple of weeks. Um, And uh, yeah, the ascendant project is great too. I've been taking really extensive notes on that. I'd like to write some reflections on it because I am one of those libertarians who I, even, even when I was religious, I wasn't spiritual. I I don't, I, I, my brain just doesn't work like that. My, my, uh, and I I even go to my brain. Like that's most of Catholicism. Yeah. (laughs) I grew up, I mean, I, yeah. I, I went to Catholic school. I graduated Catholic school. Yeah. So, I mean, I've studied, I, I know um, the Catholic church and yeah. yeah, I mean, there's spirituality is not, um, yeah. it, it, it's a lot about tradition as far as I'm, yeah. what we, I remember. We, we venerate our mystics, but we don't emulate them at all. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. All right. Well, Pete, thanks so much for joining me today. Where, uh, where can people find you? Um, Libertarian Institute. You can find me at any podcatcher, Free Man Beyond the Wall, mm-hmm. themonopolyonviolence.com, and Twitter at Peter R. Quinones. It's Peter R. Quinones on Facebook, but I mean, you can find me on Twitter pretty much. If you hit me up in a DM on Twitter, um, I will, I'll get back to you. So okay. I'm, I'm on Twitter a lot, unfortunately. But um, yeah, for the for the content, Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast and uh, the Monopoly on Violence.com. And you're also part of the Unloose the Goose gaggle. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. Unloose right. the Goose. And uh, it's that's a lot of fun. And I think that those are really informative episodes. I released one of their episodes on my podcast mm. and uh, talking about what happens if like mass rioting or civil unrest happens. And that's become a very popular episode. So one thing I love about unloose the goose uh, and uh, I'll let you go after this, but uh, is that mm-hmm. um, it takes a lot deeper dives and kind of collectivizes the knowledge of whichever, whichever uh, sort of, whichever group of the larger cast is there. Like sometimes Jack Spirico will, will release a podcast episode and then you guys will do just an hour and a half talking about one subject that Jack talked about um, in passing, which um, it's great. If uh, you know, when uh, it's, it's definitely a podcast that I recommend to everybody. So, Uh, and then Pete also, I've been a supporter of you on Patreon for a while and thank you. Uh, yeah, sure. I, and I, I definitely recommend that to, uh, 
everyone who's listening to this as well, because, you know, we got to help each other out and Pete definitely deserves it. Thanks again for coming on the show and I will talk to you soon. All right, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks again to Pete Quinones for joining me for urbanagorist.com episode number eight. Uh, Once again, you can find Pete on all the socials. And actually, he has recorded a couple of more conversations with Vin Armani about the dim age, um, which is probably the most fascinating topic on the stage today. So I'll be sure to link to all of those episodes in the show notes. Um, And once again, don't forget that the Seed Summit starts tomorrow, November 17th. So get signed up for that. You can sign up using my link at urbanagorist.com slash summit. And I will see you next time. Until then, live free. This is the way